As I uh, typed out my message for this morning, I was getting worried about the increasing page numbers, but Wendell has told me repeatedly, don't look at the clock, and don't worry about the time, and don't speed up. So place that blame wherever you will. But you might want to take notes just to be able to stay awake. Um, let's see. Christianity is not like most other world religions. It's not merely a philosophical outlook on life or a code of conduct. Christianity affects our philosophy, and it does tell us how to, what sort of lives we ought to live. But at its core, Christianity is rooted in a historical event. Most other religions aren't like that. Take Buddhism, for example. It could theoretically be true that human life is a cycle of suffering and rebirth from which it is possible to escape by achieving a state of enlightenment or nirvana. That could be true even if Siddhartha Gautama didn't really meditate under the tree of awakening. Buddhism doesn't stand or fall based on the historicity of an event. Christianity, on the other hand, does. If a man named Jesus, who lived in first century Palestine, was actually God incarnate, was put to death, and then was raised to life again, Christianity is true. If that particular historical event didn't happen, though, we should all find something else to do with our Sunday mornings because Christianity would be palpably false. In the coming weeks, others will address the question of whether Jesus was physically resurrected. Next week, Tim is going to look at what Jesus thought of himself. In the Gospel accounts, did he actually claim to be God? Or, as Bart Ehrman and others assert, did Jesus, in fact, never make any claim to deity? Before it makes any sense to look at Jesus' claims in the Gospel accounts, though, we first have to ask a different question. Are the Gospels historically reliable documents? Can we trust that the things Jesus says in the Gospels are things he actually said? Notice that we're not asking, not yet, whether the Gospels are the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Of course, we believe they are. But our goal at the outset is to defend a much more modest claim, that the Gospels are accurate history when evaluated by the same criteria that we would apply to other ancient historical documents. Is it reasonable to accept them the way historians accept the historical accounts of Plutarch or Herodotus or Tacitus or any of the other authors we rely on for information about the ancient world? We should start by asking, were the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John even trying to write accurate history? Are these documents intended to be understood as factual accounts at all? Well, that's asking, in effect, what genre are they? If they're myth, for example, then the author's intent wasn't to tell us what actually happened anyway. Well, when scholars compare the Gospels to other ancient documents, they find the closest literary parallels in ancient biographies. The technical details that show those parallels are beyond the scope or the time constraints of this message, but there are good resources <clears throat> available on the research. Um, Craig Blomberg cites Richard Burridge's pricey but thorough What Are the Gospels as a good resource, and I'm sure... Um, that the elders or Denny or somebody could probably point you in a more um, a, a direction that would be you know a more concise or um, affordable resource. But as ancient biographies, they were originally written for an ancient audience 
who would have had expectations of a biography that are a little different from what we're used to in the modern world. In his book, Making Sense of the New Testament, Craig Blomberg, Craig Blomberg explains some ways ancient expectations of historical narrative differ from modern expectations. He says ancient historical narratives contain no question marks. This punctuation actually hadn't been invented yet. Thus, everyone understood that paraphrasing a person's words, as long as the meaning was preserved, was perfectly acceptable. Today, if the words inside quotation marks in a newspaper article aren't exactly what someone said, we see that as a big problem. They've been misquoted. It's inaccurate. Not so in a world before quotation marks. This makes sense of the differences between Jesus' teaching on the eye as, of, as the lamp of the body in Matthew compared to the parallel account in Luke. Listen to the differences. Matthew in chapter 6 writes, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? While Luke, in chapter 11 of his gospel, writes, Your eyes, um, oh, I can't read my own writing. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. There are clear differences here. By modern standards, at least one of these must be inaccurate. When we put things in quotation marks, the expectation is that those are the exact words that someone said. And if we leave out any words, we're expected to indicate that with an ellipsis. However, word-for-word -word accuracy simply wasn't the expectation then. Quotations were expected to capture accurately the gist of what was said. And Matthew and Luke seem to have done that. Ancient historical narratives also were highly selective in the events they narrated. The historian was expected to choose the particular events that were important for his purpose. If the Gospels are ancient biography, it makes perfect sense that the first three decades of Jesus' life are largely unrecorded. Details that a modern biographer would be expected to relate, things like his parents' family background, his education, the friends of his youth, his early professional career, those are almost completely absent from the accounts, except when they're relevant to Jesus' identity as the prophesied Messiah. And this is perfectly in keeping with ancient expectations. Ancient biographies also abridge long accounts. An ancient audience didn't consider an author deceptive or inaccurate when he summarized a speech or an event. They understood an abbreviated summary as an accurate account. In Mark 6, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles with four verses worth of instructions. In Matthew, though, his instructions to them take the entire 10th chapter. Was Mark deceptive or wrong in his account? Did Matthew embellish the events? No. Mark chose to abbreviate his account in a way that was perfectly acceptable by ancient standards, while Matthew chose to give a fuller account of the episode. Ancient narratives also aren't necessarily arranged chronologically. We expect a biography to start at the beginning and move in a linear fashion down a timeline. 
but that wasn't the expectation in the ancient world. It was considered perfectly acceptable and accurate to arrange historical episodes topically or in a different order for the purpose of highlighting a particular point. Thus, we find events sometimes ordered differently among the Gospels. For example, Matthew places the healing of the centurion's servant in chapter 8 before the plucking of the grain on the Sabbath or the healing of the man with the withered hand. Luke, though, um, places that healing of the centurion's servant after the other two events. He's rearranged the order. In the 21st century, we might read this and say, wait a second, who's right? Somebody has their facts mixed up. But not so in the ancient world. Daryl Bach says in his commentary on Luke, though these texts present a general outline to Jesus' ministry, the choices involving arrangement of material reveal how difficult it is in some cases to determine an exact sequence. At some point, each evangelist covered Jesus' teaching on a topical not a chronological basis. And that was perfectly acceptable practice for an ancient historian. So was the practice of including the author's own commentary on the events. This seems to be what's going on in John 21 in Jesus' conversation with Peter after his resurrection. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verily I tell you, when you were younger and dressed yourself, you were younger You dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Here, John offers his own brief commentary on this exchange in a manner that was consistent with the practice of ancient historians at the time. Ancient narratives also often focus on a small portion of a person's life. This is similar to an earlier point. Of course, it would be the part considered most important. It would have seemed perfectly normal to a person living in the ancient Greco-Roman world to read the biography of a man who lived about 33 years, but to find that the story recounts almost exclusively the events of the last three years of his life. Ancient historical accounts were written with an ideological lens or a bias. We expect unbiased reporting. They did not. The ancients simply didn't expect a good biographer to be an unbiased narrator. This didn't mean that what they wrote was necessarily inaccurate. Were the authors of the Gospels biased? Yes. But this doesn't actually undermine their credibility. After all, What caused these biographers of Jesus to be followers of Jesus in the first place? Their very bias would cause them to want to get their story straight. If Jesus didn't really claim to be God, they of all people would want to know that. Then they would have been perfectly free to avoid the persecution and often martyrdom that came with those claims. Actually, if self-interest had been their motivation, there would have been considerable temptation to skew Jesus' teachings in the opposite direction, to downplay his more shocking claims and teachings, and to present him as just a harmless itinerant preacher. 
Instead, they relayed what they believed to be the truth that had resulted in their devotion to Jesus. It had resulted in their bias. So it seems clear that the Gospels are ancient biographies that conform well to the standards expected of the genre. Another vital question is, were the authors interested in preserving accurate history? They claim to have been. John, writing of the crucifixion, says, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Luke claims that the purpose of his whole book was to write an orderly account of the facts. His gospel opens, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke here writes of eyewitness accounts and careful investigation, clearly indicating an attempt to record events as they actually happened. Were the author's intentions trustworthy, or could they have had motives for falsifying events? It's hard to imagine what they would have had to gain by inventing Jesus' claims to deity or his resurrection. It certainly was not the surest route to fortune or long life. If Jesus did not claim to be God, if he didn't rise from the dead, there was simply no incentive for a first-century author to invent those events. The apostles, whose teachings the Gospels preserve, almost all went to their deaths for those very claims. It seems clear, then, that the writers wanted to record accurate history, but did they have the ability to do it? Who were they? When did they write? Were they close enough to the events that they narrated to be accurate? The early church agreed unanimously on the authorship of all four canonical Gospels. Uh, Clement, writing in about the year 96, refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the authors of the Gospels bearing their names. Ignatius and Polycarp, in the beginning of the second century, agree, and they add to that the Gospel of John, as well as Luke as the author of Acts. This is noteworthy, both as attestation to the writer's identities and also as a clear indication that the Gospels had been written and were in circulation by the end of the first century and the beginning of the second. Is there a likelihood that someone else wrote them? And in order to establish some credibility for their book, they attached um, to those books the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This hardly seems likely. John, as an apostle in Jesus' inner circle, he might have been a tempting name as a pseudonym, but the two of the others, Mark and Luke, weren't even apostles. And Matthew was a tax collector, hardly the disciple with the most reputable resume in the eyes of that book's Jewish audience. Why choose Matthew? The most likely explanation for the unanimous attribution is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did indeed write the books that bear their names. But did they see those events themselves? 
If not, were there sources eyewitnesses? Eyewitness testimony is key to discovering what happened in the past, after all. Well, we've already seen that while he wasn't an apostle or an eyewitness himself, Luke, in his preface, claims to have researched thoroughly, including searching out eyewitness testimony. In addition to his gospel, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Well, beginning in Acts 16, Luke writes in the first person, an indication that Luke had joined Paul, that he went to Jerusalem with Paul, where he would have had contact with eyewitnesses, just like he claimed. John claims in several places to have been an eyewitness who was on the scene himself. can't see the top of my first one. Um, In John 19, he says, when Jesus saw his mother there, this is at the crucifixion, And the disciple whom he loved, that is John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John is claiming here to have been on the scene at the crucifixion. Later in that chapter, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. And then in chapter 21, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, again John, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. John says he claims that he saw these things with his own eyes. Matthew, as a disciple was with Jesus during his public ministry and was thus an eyewitness of much that he he wrote. Papias, writing in about 125, tells us that Mark, as the companion of Peter, recorded Peter's eyewitness testimony. Irenaeus, a student of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John himself, so we have John teaching Polycarp, who then taught Irenaeus, And Irenaeus wrote about the year 180, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter himself, handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. It seems clear that the gospels were either written by an eyewitness, as is the case with Matthew and John, or that they recorded eyewitness accounts, as in Mark and Luke. What about, though, the lapse of time? Some skeptics, oops, I had a slide for that. Um, Some skeptics say that the events of Jesus' death and ministry were simply too long ago to know. How can we know, with any degree of certainty, what happened 2,000 years ago? But we have to remember that the time gap that matters is not the gap between Jesus and us, but rather the gap between the events and the recording of those events. We've seen that the authors either were eyewitnesses 
or had access to eyewitnesses. It's also clear from the evidence that the lapse of time between what they saw and when they recorded it was relatively short. There was a time when liberal scholars tried to claim that the canonical gospels were late, far too late to be relied upon for an accurate record. As more and more evidence has mounted, though, even skeptical scholars concede that Mark was written by the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, and John in the 90s, all well within the lifetimes of eyewitnesses who would have been able to correct falsified accounts. Many of those eyewitnesses were hostile to the gospel and would have been eager to point out false claims. There's very good reason to believe that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written earlier than this, though. Uh, Follow along here. The book of Acts, which is the follow-up to Luke's gospel, it ends with Peter, I'm sorry, it ends with Paul under arrest, under house arrest in Rome. That would be a really weird place to end a book if Paul had already been executed by the time the book was written. So it's highly likely that Acts was written no later than AD 62. And if that's the case, Luke's earlier book, Luke, must have been earlier still. And since most scholars agree that Luke used Mark as a source, then Mark must have been written no later than AD 60, possibly even in the 50s. This puts the completion of the earliest Gospels within about 30 years of the events. While three decades may be too long to remember what color shoes a friend wore on a random day, some details, like what he believed about his identity, why people wanted to kill him, and whether you did indeed see him alive after a torturous death, those are more likely to stick with you even after 30 years. It's really not that long. Scholar A.N. Sherwin-White, a Greco-Roman historian, not a theologian, studied the amount of time that it takes for legend to obscure the core facts in a historical event. And he concluded that two generations was not sufficient time. That means that the 30-year gap between Jesus' ministry and the earliest gospel's composition was not nearly enough time for them to be filled with legends instead of fact. The original eyewitnesses were still living, They were living corrections to any potential accrual of fancy. The early church um, actually seems to have been aware of the danger of fanciful embellishment as time passed. There were very good reasons that the criteria for inclusion in the New Testament canon included an early date of composition and an apostolic and eyewitness connection. The church wanted to be sure that they recognized as scripture only those works which were, among other things, trustworthy and historically reliable. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John met those criteria, unlike the later but oft-touted apocryphal gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter. Those later 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century works contain exactly the sort of fanciful legend that we would expect to accrue over time. Not so the canonical Gospels, which were all written in the 1st century. If we're evaluating these ancient books the same way a historian would evaluate other ancient sources, 
a couple of secular examples could be helpful to look at. Um, Take Alexander the Great. Most of us could probably name at least a few facts that we know about him. You know, his dad was Philip of Macedon, and Alexander led a Greek army conquering an empire, made it all the way to India. Um, Historians actually have a large degree of confidence that we can know some things about him. But the earliest biographies that we have of Alexander the Great were written not 30 or 100 or even 200 years after his death, but an astounding 400 years. Or take Julius Caesar. We all know he crossed the Rubicon River, committing to a course of civil war, changing the course of the Roman Republic, paving the way for an empire. What most people probably don't realize is that we know all of this from four accounts that were written a couple of hundred years after the event. All four accounts rely on the same eyewitness source, which we don't have. The accounts differ on the date and on the exact location of the crossing. But in spite of this, historians agree that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, changing the course of history. And they're confident of that in spite of a 200-year gap of time. A paltry 30 years suddenly seems like nothing. Compared to other events of ancient history, we can have a significant degree of confidence in the accuracy of our knowledge of Jesus' life and ministry. Our confidence grows even more, more solid, if we realize that during that 30-year gap, before the gospel writers preserved a written record, an oral record was being carefully preserved. This was no casual game of telephone in which news traveled around by word of mouth in a haphazard fashion and could quickly come to bear little resemblance to the original. In the Greco-Roman world, memory was prized. Educated boys often learned large segments of the Iliad or the Odyssey. Jews were a comparatively literate culture by ancient standards. After all, they prized the written record of God's revelation to their ancestors. They prized their scriptures. Um, They valued the written scriptures, but they didn't have cheap, widely available copies of it in their homes. Consequently, there was a big emphasis on memorization of those scriptures. In addition to scripture, it was Jewish custom to memorize a rabbi's teaching. A good pupil was said to be like a plastered cistern that loses not a drop. Jesus' pupils certainly would have valued their rabbi's teaching that way. And as the accounts of the events of Jesus' ministry and his teachings were passed on, the disciples and other eyewitnesses were still living and able to correct any mistakes in transmission. The facts of Jesus' life and teaching would have been accurately preserved in oral tradition for a relatively brief period of time, and then preserved in written form, all during a time when eyewitnesses were available to check any inaccuracies or embellishments. In the books of Acts and Galatians, we actually see that practice of checking up on the accuracy of the teaching in a newly established church. We also see evidence of the careful preservation of Jesus' teaching and the early church's unwillingness to invent or to embellish his teaching, even when it would have solved controversy or served their own purposes. 
Consider the arguments in the early church over the circumcision of Gentile converts or disputes about speaking in tongues. What better way to solve the issues than to simply invent a teaching of Jesus on the matter? But apparently they didn't think that they were free to do that. In 1 Corinthians 7, when he was writing about marriage and divorce, Paul is really careful to distinguish the actual sayings of Jesus, the things Jesus said, from his own teaching on the matter, despite the fact that he was writing with authority as an apostle. The early church, even the apostles, were concerned with accurately preserving a record of Jesus' life and teachings. Further bolstering our confidence in the gospel's reliability are details that would have better served the purposes or the reputations of the authors to leave out. If you want to promote the deity of your leader, do you include details like he doesn't know when he's coming back? Um, Do you include shocking countercultural claims like um, you need to hate your father and mother? Do you include details like he couldn't do miracles in his own hometown? Now, we can see from a careful study of that passage that it wasn't Jesus' lack of power that prevented miracles, but why include it at all if you're trying to falsify a claim to deity? It seems that the gospel writers simply felt compelled to record the truth, even when the truth was hard. This holds true for accounts that would have been embarrassing for the apostles. The presence of unflattering material about the apostles in the book of Mark is especially striking when we remember that the apostle Peter was actually the source. In Mark, the apostles frequently completely misunderstand what Jesus is telling them. They think, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees is some kind of reference to forgetting to pack lunch. Um, They bicker like children over who's the greatest. And the mother of two of them even tries to maneuver her sons into the top spots in Jesus' coming kingdom. Peter himself babbles nonsense at the transfiguration and later denies even knowing Jesus. These are not the kind of details you include about yourself when you're trying to drum up support for your new cult. Unless, of course, they're true. And you are committed to telling the truth. Similarly, if you wanted to falsely claim that your teacher didn't stay dead, you would make up a story with as much credibility as you could muster. You'd pick somebody really respectable to find the empty tune. Maybe John, maybe Peter. In the first century, women would not have fit the bill. Their testimony was not even admissible in court. Why on earth? portray women as the first witnesses to the resurrection unless you knew it to be true and you felt compelled to tell the truth whether it was convenient or not. Now, by far, the majority of our primary source material on the life of Jesus is contained in the four canonical gospels and in the letters of Paul. Uh, The letters of Paul are technically outside the scope of this message, Uh, But it is worth noting here that at least some of them may have been written before the Gospels themselves. So the idea that Jesus never claimed to be God, that his earliest followers didn't view him as God, and that his deity was a much later development in the church 
is just palpably false when we consider the teachings contained in these early New Testament documents. From Paul's letters, especially the creeds that he incorporates in Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, we see that from the earliest days of the church, the details of Jesus' Last Supper, his betrayal, his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances were believed by the church. Even the non-Christian Gerd Ludemann acknowledges that Christians were proclaiming the resurrection within two years of the event itself. There was simply no time for legend to accrue in this short period of time, especially with so many hostile eyewitnesses eager to crush the fledgling movement. Back to the Gospels, though. Uh, what about the issue of apparent contradictions among the Gospels? The four Gospels have different accounts about who first visited the empty tomb. Matthew has Jesus healing two blind men near Jericho, while Mark tells us about only one. The genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke differ significantly. Don't contradictions like these undermine the credibility of these documents? Well, these apparent contradictions are worth studying, but there are reasonable solutions to each of them. Actually, there are enough differences among the gospel accounts to bolster our trust in them. If every detail matched, we might reasonably wonder whether the writers had collaborated, coordinating their stories to ensure that they wouldn't conflict. Instead, we see enough agreement and variation to demonstrate independent narration of the same events. Think about this for a minute. Four people all in this room this morning would be likely to include different details when talking about it tomorrow. Gabriel might mention that we sang Because We Believe, while Dave Stevens might give a complete list of songs. Nate Elkington might describe several kids playing on the playground after the service, while men Wendell mentions only two kids who ran through the sound booth. Like they're going to remember different details. Each person here would remember and recount a different collection of details. So, too, we should expect the four gospel writers to choose different details for their biographies. In the accounts of the discovery of the empty tomb, it's easy to see that the four gospel writers, while all being accurate and truthful, each chose to include different details. It seems that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome all went to the tomb, um, but that Mark names all three, Matthew names just the two Marys, John mentions only Mary Magdalene by name, and Luke says only the women. None of them, though, says only so-and-so and no one else went to the tomb. It's possible that each writer mentioned by name only the women whose names would have been familiar to the original audience of his book. Um, after the accounts of the initial discovery, each author then focuses on the movements of different people who didn't necessarily stay together. There's a difference among the four, as we would expect from four people independently narrating the same events, but that's not an actual contradiction. In the same way, Matthew and Luke chose different individuals to include in their genealogies. But this isn't a problem, 
if we keep in mind that it was standard practice in ancient genealogies to list select names, to skip over generations. Matthew and Luke were writing for different audiences, and thus they chose different names to include in their lists. But that's not necessarily a true contradiction. We would expect Matthew, writing for a predominantly Jewish readership, um, and Luke, whose readers included more Gentiles, to make different choices of detail. And that's exactly what we do find in the genealogies, even down to Matthew's choice um, to trace the genealogy back to Abraham while Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. The Gospels are certainly our main primary source um, on the life of Jesus, but do we have any non-Christian sources that tell us something about him? Shouldn't we expect to find details of his life recorded by someone else? Um, well, actually, for a man who had only a three-year teaching ministry in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, who never held political office or led an army, we have an impressive amount of corroboration from both Jewish and Roman sources. From non-Christian sources, including the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, Roman historian Tacitus, Roman governor Pliny, and later Jewish writers— we find confirmation of the following facts about Jesus. He was a Jewish teacher. He had a reputation as a miracle worker. Later, Jewish um, sources actually refer to him as a sorcerer in order to explain that reputation. Some people believed he was the Messiah. He was rejected by Jewish leaders. He was crucified as a criminal under Pontius Pilate during the reign of the emperor Tiberius. His followers believed that he was still alive, and despite persecution, their number grew even after his death. And according to Pliny, um, in AD 112, he was worshipped as a god. All this at a time when historical accounts focused on rulers, generals, and great leaders, not itinerant preachers. No one in the first century knew that this new religion would last, eventually growing to become the dominant religion in the empire, this is actually an amazing amount of evidence for an obscure Jewish teacher. If we consider the outside corroboration for other people, places, and events mentioned in the Gospels, uh, we find evidence that the Gospel writers were accurate in their details. And these are just a very, very few examples. There are entire books written on the subject. Um, several geographic details in John are confirmed elsewhere. The location of Jacob's well, um, the reference to going down to Capernaum from Cana, that's a drop of hundreds of yards in elevation, the existence of the Pool of Bethesda and its architectural details, those have been discovered by um, archaeologists. Actually, archaeology, um, archaeological finds consistently confirm Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as careful historians with accurate knowledge of the area. Considering the drastic changes that took place during the Great Jewish War and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, those details would have actually been difficult, if not impossible, to record accurately by a writer who hadn't been familiar with Palestine before the war. Contrast this with the archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. 
that supposedly records events in the Americas. No archaeological evidence has provided any corroboration for any of those narratives. We also find outside confirmation of the character of Pilate in the Gospels. Um, while for most, well, most of his career, he was known as being bold and inflexible, not at all the kind of spineless, vacillating guy who yielded to the crowds in the Gospels. In about AD 31, his patron fell from power because of a plot against the emperor. That would have put him in a more precarious position, making him anxious to keep peace with local leaders and really reluctant to be called no friend of Caesar. Uh, we find confirmation that Luke carefully and accurately references local rulers using the correct titles, despite the fact that there was no uniform system of titles throughout the empire. These would have been really difficult to keep straight for someone who wasn't actually there. There's actually an amazing amount of corroboration um, for detail in the book of Acts, which bolsters our confidence in Luke, that book's author, as a careful historian. The archaeologist Sir William Ramsey tells us that Luke is a, quote, historian of the first rank, and he should be placed along with the very greatest historians, end quote. Craig Blomberg's Making Sense of the New Testament and Paul Barnett's Is the New Testament Reliable have chapters that go into these and other details, which are corroborated by outside sources, um, and there are whole books on the topic as well. In short, where the Gospels can be cross-checked with outside history, geography, and archaeology, we find that they are an accurate record. This should increase our confidence that other events that they record are also accurate. In short, we have excellent reasons to trust that the Gospels are reliable historical records. The authors were writing ancient biography, a genre intended to record events accurately, and they did so in a manner consistent with ancient readers' expectations. They had no incentive or motive to make false statements about Jesus' identity or his resurrection. The early church was unanimous that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the authors and that they were either eyewitnesses or they recorded eyewitness testimony. They actually appear to have been so committed to being truthful that they recorded even information that was personally embarrassing or potentially detrimental to their cause. While there are differences in perspective among the four gospel writers, there are no unresolvable true contradictions that should cause us to doubt their reliability. When people, places, and events can be cross-checked with outside evidence, the Gospels consistently turn out to be accurate. Now, all these things can increase our faith as Christians that the Gospels are, in fact, the inerrant Word of God. But it's important to remember that in our, in our evangelistic efforts, there is no need at this point in the conversation to convince someone that these Gospels are inerrant. Merely demonstrating that they are reasonably reliable primary sources is enough to start with. That then can lead to Tim's topic for next week. According to these documents, who did Jesus think he was? And that's where he will pick up then.
Wow, that was a lot of information. Good stuff. Thank you, Carrie. Very helpful. Carried a lot, and that seemed like a seminary class. I mean, it was just good content and and um, well-connected. So I just want to reiterate something that she said there at the end. Do keep in mind here that we're not trying to make a case in sharing the gospel with others that you have to believe that the scriptures at this point is the word of God. You Sometimes it's just... Uh, it's enough to start with the fact that they are reliable, they, that they provide a reliable historical account of the events that are recorded. And that's what Carrie was making the case here for today. And it was, it was indeed a very convincing case. And um, there's a number of books that have addressed this subject. And of course, would encourage you to go back and listen to this message again, um, for sure. So uh, let's stand and we will close. Look at that, Carrie. It's right at 1130. She was all worried. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. On those words you are dismissed, go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.